Hey, thanks for coming back and listening to Your Week with St. Luke's. We are actually finishing up this first part of the Gospel of Mark um, and meeting Jesus in particular ways with chapter 8. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' call as a prophet to us and what it calls us to do as disciples. How does he teach discipleship and, and how do we journey with Jesus in trying to be his student and his apprentice? So let's listen in to our lecture and then make sure that you stay after to join us for our Office Hours podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to this final week in our study on the Gospel of Mark. Today, we'll be discussing exactly what it means to be one of Jesus' disciples, according to the story that Mark tells. And I promise you, it is not for the faint of heart. We'll discuss today not only what sort of activities involve Uh, being a disciple, but also the way of being, the manner of engagement that it requires. Let's dig in. First, the disciples' job description is quite varied in Mark's gospel. You might have to field questions about your master. In Mark chapter 2, verse 16, the text says, When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, that is, Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he do this? I feel like this is one of those questions that we in our current context can really relate with. Because since Jesus is not presently physically embodied in our midst, we often, as followers of Christ, must answer questions about the strangeness of our master and why he does and expects such often considered strange things by the world, like why you would eat with people who weren't desirable for making social connections, or why you might give away everything that you have in order that others might live. We are still having to fit ourselves to this job description, which is answering questions about Jesus. Another thing that the disciples do is they get co-opted. They get brought into the same activities of miraculous love that Jesus does throughout Mark's Gospels. They distribute bread. In fact, when the disciples bring to him the problem of there being so many hungry people, he says, you give them something to eat. It is your job to feed the people that follow me. And so, of course, in Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus taking five loaves and two fish, breaking and blessing these loaves, and then it says he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. In this context, we see that one of the descriptions of what a disciple's job is, is to care for the people that are following the master. All these people are there to see Jesus, and Jesus provides, but the disciples play an important role in distributing the Lord's provisions. And this, I also believe, is something that we can also see ourselves and our communities of faith being part of. We have been blessed by God, and we have been brought into fellowship with Christ and his church. And so it is then our responsibility to distribute the goodness that we have received from God, that the same grace and acceptance and forgiveness that we have experienced that we'd in turn distribute to the world around us. Ah, but then, the poor disciples in Mark, 
one of their biggest tasks is taking direct and often very harsh criticism from their master. In fact, as we go through Mark's gospel, you've probably already heard and seen it in these last eight weeks, how often Jesus sort of takes shots at the disciple, being very harsh with them sometimes. In Mark chapter 4, he says to them, why are you still afraid? Do you still not have any faith? Jesus isn't pulling any punches. In that same chapter, he asks them, do you not understand this parable? How are you going to understand any of the parables if you don't get this one? Now, I'm not saying that Jesus's method of teaching is one that we should all adopt for our own particular Sunday schools, <laughs> but Jesus is very undaunted by offering direct and harsh criticism to his disciples. And his disciples seem to understand that this is part of the process. This is an interesting uh, particular example. Uh, Jesus is, has someone in the crowd bring him his son. And he says, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't do it. So here we see two of these uh, job descriptions for the disciples. One, they're supposed to be performing the same miracles. In fact, we've seen this before. Jesus sends them out and tells them to cast out spirits and to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. Here, someone rightly brings their sick, afflicted person, not to Jesus, but to the disciples. But the disciples can't do it. And if so, of course, they receive censure from Jesus. In fact, Jesus responds. Notice the text says in Mark chapter 9, he answered them. This is not to the man, the one man, but the text says to them, you faithless generation. How much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? And then later, at the end of that same story, it says his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus answered, this kind only comes out through prayer. Do you hear the criticism there? Jesus is calling them a faithless generation, even though these men have had faith enough to leave everything behind and follow Jesus even though they've been with him and been distributing the bread and the fish and they've gone out and they've been teaching and they've been healing. And yet it still seems that with some very basic elements of faith, like simply prayer, the disciples, he doesn't know how much longer he can put up with them, which is a good thing that he doesn't know how much longer because Jesus doesn't have much longer to live. So he's only going to have to suffer them just a little while. And if you wonder, oh, are you sure that he was talking about the disciples when he says, you faithless generation? And when he's, I want you to pay attention. Notice that he says you couldn't cast it out because it only comes, this kind of, of spirit can only be cast out through prayer. Notice what happens on the night that Jesus is betrayed and is he, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. It says that he came and found them, Peter and James and John, sleeping. And he said 
to Peter. Notice he says this specifically to Peter. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, Jesus went away and prayed, saying the same words he had prayed before. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? I think that this passage gives us an answer to the, was Jesus talking to the disciples about being a faithless generation? And when he tells them that they couldn't cast the demon out because they were not committed to praying, I think that this passage certainly demonstrates that this was one of their tendencies, that they did not as wholeheartedly attend to what they were meant to be keeping their spiritual focus on. And what I also think is very interesting is that Jesus keeps giving them opportunities. He comes to them the first time and says, oh, you need to stay awake. You need to pray. Here's why it's important. And it says once more he came back and yet a third time. He continuously gives the disciples opportunities to try again. And I think this is the nature of discipleship that we really need to be drawing out of Mark's gospel. And in fact, the best example for why I believe that this is such an important facet of discipleship as Mark presents it is in a particular passage in Mark chapter 8 that you've been reading this week. What's interesting about Mark is Mark loves a good sandwich. We've talked about the Mark and sandwich before, how he'll have two texts about a particular thing that maybe have something to do with each other. And then in between those two texts, the, the meat, if you will, in the sandwich seems to be something that's unrelated to those two bread texts, the one on either side. And yet, when we pay close attention to all the elements, both the slices of bread and the meat in the middle, that middle portion gives us an interpretive key on how to look at the other two passages and to really see what do they have to do with each other. So I want to offer this to you today as we look at this Markin sandwich together. The first slice of bread happens when the disciples forget to bring bread. <laughs> it says in Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 21, it says they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And they said to one another, huh, this must be because we have no bread. <laughs> and becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? Do you not remember? Remember how we talked about one of the job descriptions of a disciple is putting up with Jesus's very harsh criticism. Well, here we go. This is it. And then Jesus goes on. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, 12. 
And when I did the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. Then he said to them, do you still not understand? What's interesting is, again, Jesus has given them several chances to understand what's going on. Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people with five loaves. And then, a few chapters later, miraculously feeds 4,000 with only seven loaves. And both times, they have so much left over. And yet, here they are in a boat with only one loaf for the 12 disciples and Jesus. And they're concerned about it. And Jesus is, is just baffled at the fact that they've seen these miracles take place. And they've been part of these miracles. And they just don't seem to understand why would you worry about not having any bread if you have someone who by merely blessing the bread and breaking it can make there be more than enough. It seems that they sort of stubbornly or ignorantly continue to go back to the things that they thought they knew before they encountered Jesus. One of those things being bread is finite. What I see is all that's there. And Jesus has continually proved to them that when it is in the presence of the Son of God, when it's in the presence of Jesus, anything can be multiplied to be more than enough. So while we hear Jesus' frustration, we also hear that he's offering them another chance to understand. Now, the second slice of bread in this Markin sandwich comes a little while later, and it says Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Okay, so remember, in the first passage that we just read, the bread part one, they're in a boat, in bread part two, they're now on foot, and they're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. And it says on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others say you're one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Again, that harsh and absolutely direct, no punches pulled criticism that Jesus levies at his disciples, and in particular at Peter. He does not spare his feelings. He doesn't do even one of those teacher tricks where you take a wrong answer and somehow make it be part of discovering the right answer. No, Jesus just absolutely refuses to accept Peter's answer and says, no, you don't understand what you're saying and you have your mind on completely different things than you want to. Just like in the circumstances of prayer, you are not attending to 
or paying attention to the real important element that's going on here. In both of these bread passages, Jesus is having to completely reorient his disciples and tell them, you are not focusing on the appropriate thing, or you've just got it all wrong, period. And in fact, Jesus will elaborate on why it is that Peter has this wrong. And it's important that Jesus does it because when we think disciple, we think that someone that follows someone around and learns from them, that that is an apprentice, which is absolutely true. But the whole point of following them and learning from them is, in a, in a sense, to become as they are. So as the master does, so the disciple does. If the disciple doesn't understand what the master is doing, they can never become a master in their own sense. And so it's so important that Jesus completely course correct his disciples when they have it so wrong because Jesus tells them very frankly, as soon as he was finished rebuking Peter, it says he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their lives for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. It is very important to Jesus that he reorients them. That when Peter says, no, you're not going to die, you're not going to suffer, you're not going to be rejected. Jesus, don't even talk like this. It's important that Jesus says no. And it's not, it's not as if Peter could dissuade Jesus from his course. But he's correcting him because this is Peter's course as well as a disciple. If you are my follower, you must also take up a cross. It's not that they're following Jesus to see what he does. They're following Jesus so that they can do what Jesus does. And in fact, in another part of Mark's gospel in chapter 10, Jesus will say to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Although the criticism may seem harsh, Jesus wants them to be fully aware and fully prepared for what's coming and to be willing to take on that mantle. So that's the what. That's the what it's being called to be a disciple. But now we return again to the how. And that's where we go to the middle of the Markin sandwich. Remember, on the first side, we have Jesus saying, how is it you don't remember that I multiplied the bread? On the other side, he's rebuking Peter and saying, you have your, thing, your mind set on the very wrong things. You are not seeing it clearly. Now the middle. That seems unrelated to those two other stories. I think we'll shed some light on what it means to be Jesus' disciple, as Mark understands it. In Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, the text says, They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. 
Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then Jesus sent him away to his home, saying, Don't even go into the village. I think we can see quite clearly how this particular passage relates to the other two passages that flank it. Because the other two passages have to do with Jesus rebuking his disciples, have to do with Jesus correcting his disciples, even though he's frustrated with him. In this miracle passage, which seems unrelated, the disciples aren't even in this story. But in order to truly be able to see, Jesus has to heal the man twice. It doesn't take the first time. He doesn't get it. He doesn't see everything clearly that first time. And Jesus is willing to put his hands back on him and sort of coach or coax him into sight until the man is fully healed. What's very interesting is this story only occurs in Mark's gospel. I don't know if the other gospel writers weren't comfortable with the thought that Jesus' miracle wouldn't take the first time. But I think that you and I can find a lot of encouragement. As disciples ourselves of this master, we can find encouragement in the fact that even with the disciples, even with Jesus and this man who desperately wanted to be healed, it doesn't always happen all at once. That maybe one of the things that's most important about being disciples is a willingness to get it wrong sometimes. That it's not just that you're in the presence of Jesus and so everything is perfect, but that you're in the presence of Jesus and so you have all the help you need to continually work at getting it, maybe not always right, but better. Maybe that first time you see, but maybe it's a little fuzzy and you have to ask Jesus to touch you again, help you farther. I think that this right here is probably the most important element in being Jesus' disciples as Mark understands it. They take so much criticism. Why? Maybe because they understand that being a disciple is a process, that it's not a one-time miracle, that he touched me and I'll never be the same and everything is fine. But maybe they understand that just like this journey to Jerusalem that they're on with this very enigmatic Savior, maybe they understand that their being his disciples is also a journey, and they're not going to get it all at once. And so that means they're going to have to take some criticism. They're going to have to be corrected. They're going to have to do it over and over again and pray that it gets better. And I think that there's hope for them and that there's hope for us. Another reason that I believe that this is so is because so many of these passages that we've dealt with today really highlight the character of Peter, particularly the fact that Peter often in his uh, enthusiasm still gets things wrong. Remember, he rebukes Jesus and tells him, don't talk like that, Jesus, you're not going to die. And Jesus rebukes him. Well, later, at the end of the story, I think we remember that Peter gets it wrong again. And so, the night that Jesus has his final supper with his disciples, 
It says, after they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though all might become deserters, I will not. And Jesus said to him, oh, truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But Peter said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I would not deny you. And all of them said the same. Hmm. It's very interesting. All the enthusiasm. We can almost hear the same tone that Peter takes with Jesus here as he did there in Caesarea Philippi when he tries to talk Jesus out of this crazy notion that he's going to be killed and rejected. And yet Jesus tells him, no. But notice before Jesus even tells him, you're going to get it wrong. <laughs> Look, today, tonight even, before the sun even comes up, you're, you're going to leave me. Before Jesus even tells Peter how he's going to mess up, Jesus offers the hope of being able to have another chance to get it right. Because notice how he says, you'll all become deserters, but after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Jesus is already making plans for giving them another chance, even though he knows that they're going to desert him. And of course, Peter, in all of his vigor and in all of his vim, says, no, I will be with you, I won't leave. And Jesus is already planning his forgiveness. He's already planning, here's another one of those times that we're going to have to do this over again until we get it right. And so I'm not sure if Peter is the model disciple, but I think repeat is definitely the model disciple. And the finale of Mark's gospel really drives this point home. As the women entered the tomb, in Mark chapter 16, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there's the place that they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Right here at the end, even though we don't get to see the risen Jesus in Mark's gospel, we hear those same words like Jesus said, but don't worry, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now remember, Jesus said you will all become deserters, right? For it is written, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. And then Jesus had moved into an even more targeted conversation saying, Oh, Peter, not only everyone's going to desert me, but you're going to really desert me. You're going to deny me three times. And then notice here in this final, final scene of Mark's gospel, the man at the tomb tells them, Go tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell all that deserted him, but especially let the one who really, really screwed up know that Jesus is looking forward to seeing him and is waiting for him in Galilee. Friends, 
This is probably the most important message about discipleship that the Gospel of Mark offers us. That it is not a one-time thing. If you have screwed up, messed up, slipped up, it is not the end, but actually you're being a model disciple because you still keep coming back and Jesus still keeps offering us opportunities to do it over, to do it better. Because every time we are learning from the master and we cannot help when we are learning with the master and following him and staying close, we cannot help but start doing as he does, living this life that's shaped by a cross, denying ourselves and following him. I am so pleased that you've been with us through this eight-week study on Mark's gospel. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's deepened your understanding of this short, terse, and rough gospel. And I hope that as you continue in your Lenten studies and reading the Bible, that this Jesus in this gospel will remain with you. Be blessed. Grace and peace, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. We are here on our final one for this this time around. We're finishing up and getting ready for Lent, and we're on chapter 8 of Mark, Jesus and the Prophet. We have all of your, your pastors from St. Luke's here with you all, again, with Dr. E.B. Arnold uh, with us as we dive into chapter 8 in Jesus the Prophet. Um, E.B., uh, what do we do with this? What do we do with this here? Well, this is a really great passage, and it's a really interesting passage because in chapter 8, we have the first time that Jesus reveals to his disciples that he is going to die. Mm. And so this is kind of one of those, those big um, all-caps moments of Mark's gospel when Jesus reveals who he is uh, to his disciples and that he is going, he's, he's not the Messiah that they think is going to reign forever without any kind of interruption. And uh, he has some retraining to do. And so this week in the lecture, we talk about Jesus's method of training his disciples. And it's, it's really interesting because uh, one of my favorite things about Mark is that Mark loves a good sandwich. So so what Mark will do very often throughout his narrative is he'll take two two stories that seem pretty related that have like a similar theme and then in between those stories he'll have something that seems like it doesn't have anything to do with them but then when you've read all three you realize the one in the middle taught you how to see the ones on the outside mm. so the salami in the middle tells you how to interpret the bread um, if that makes that. sense yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's uh, what's really interesting is here in mark 8 there's two stories there's the feeding of the 5000 or 4000 and then Jesus rebukes Peter Okay, And so both of these stories are about discipleship because in the one hand, he tells the disciples, hand out the bread and fish to the people. You serve them. You give them something to eat. So he's teaching them how to do the thing. Okay, Mm -hmm. you want to be Jesus in the world? You do this. Then on the other hand, he tells them, okay, I'm going to die and whoever comes after me has to also carry a cross that they will eventually also be on. And Peter says, no, no, that's not right. And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) 
But the interesting thing is the story in the middle is a story where Jesus heals a blind man. And the best part of the story, I think, is he heals him and he says, what do you see? And the guy says, I don't know, everything's kind of fuzzy. I see what looks like people walking around like trees. Mm -hmm. They're kind of misshapen and they don't look right. And so Jesus has to heal him again Mm -hmm. to get it to take. Mm -hmm. And I think what the takeaway of this Mark and Sandwich is, discipleship doesn't always happen the first time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or it takes more than one try. Mm -hmm. This is something that we always are going back to. And so I'm thinking, how does that, How does that speak to us in how we either disciple people in the church, how we take people along behind us, how we teach and preach and train, Mm -hmm. or how does, what does it do in how we offer ourselves as disciples, as apprentices to Jesus? What does that look like for us? Deep thoughts. <laughs> Sorry, that was a Where lot we, of questions. No, all I'm not, I, I, I actually think that all of the answers are that it's a journey. And for me, I pause in the midst of the daily life that I'm leading and going, and it's work. Mm. And even though this is my work, if, if I were sitting in the pews and it was not my work, I would go, I don't want to work at it. Mm-hmm. I want to mm-hmm. come on Sunday and I want to worship and I want to walk away feeling good so that it prepares me to lead the rest of my life as work. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to not check the box. I really want to in deeply engage on Sunday so that it prepares me and lets me go do my other work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you're talking about and that, I need to continually work and be healed to again and again and again to see clearly mm-hmm. is daily work that mm-hmm. defines the rest of my work. And that just, that's a lot. Uh, it makes me think of sanctifying grace. Mm-hmm. That yeah. Um, yeah. The God's grace that continues to shape us mm-hmm. and move us on to perfection. We're not yeah. perfect now. Yeah. In that, and it humbles me to think, as somebody who's called to disciple, uh-huh. that it's not going to happen right away. Yeah. That if this is this daily work that I'm working on myself and that I'm called to do as well. That um, that sanctifying grace that's pushing, moving, shaping. And it's dynamic, right? Yeah. There's ups and downs mm-hmm. with that concept of sanctifying grace. <laughs> it's death and birth. And yeah. by the way, we don't like to talk about death. No. We said that <laughs> a couple weeks ago. Three weeks ago. <laughs> I well, think it forces us to acknowledge that just like almost everything else in life, our life in faith and as disciples and disciplers uh, is not linear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that especially speaking with a lot of <clears throat> young adults who are trying to live into the milestones of adulthood that, or the milestones that have defined adulthood uh, in the past and finding it difficult or having to reckon with themselves and like, oh, I'm, well, I, I might not be able to buy a house mm-hmm. by this age. And so you, you start to redefine what it means to make progress and redefine what it means to be moving forward. But uh, as you kind of went to like our Wesleyan theology, and um, I, I guess I'm asking y'all to help me with this, but like even our Wesleyan, our via salutis, our way of salvation, our understanding of what it means to have a life in faith isn't necessarily linear. Like you said, we're moving 
uh, onward towards right. perfection, mm-hmm. right? But that doesn't mean that it's all right. like this. We're right. always Dynamic. moving the ball forward. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think sometimes yeah. people can get discouraged because we find ourselves back at the same place where we've been before and we think, I thought I was done with this. Mm-hmm. And and that that na- that na- notion that we should be moving forward when we come back to an old place, we can be like really sort of de- feel defeated. Mm-hmm. Like there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. And so we yeah. fight with it, which fighting with reality is always a losing battle. <laughs> yes. You yeah. know, so I think how do we embrace the reality of we do keep returning to some yeah. of those same struggles or we keep returning to some of those same lessons. And how do we try to see them differently each time so that we right. don't get stuck in that slump of, well, I guess I'm just never going to get it right. Right, right. If, yeah. if, if, I can, if I can do something crazy and read some of the scripture. Oh, wow. Um, in in <laughs> chapter 8, starting at verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, asking him for a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit <laughs> and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. It's not a big neon flashing sign that makes everything clear and all right. happens in a moment. Right. Um, and and right. it's it, the milestones aren't always going to look the way we want them to. And the, the moments of faith, you know, it's it's that, what is it, spiral dynamics that we're going to come back to the same point and hopefully we're, we're farther along in the journey. But yeah, we're going to keep revisiting some of the same things. We've been teaching the same book for a long time. We are talking about Jesus for 52 weeks this year. Yeah. <laughs> right? Even the liturgical calendar, we come back to the stuff yeah, all yes. the time. Well, I love how, you know, right. the Bible says it. It's not that easy, right? Especially <laughs> what you just read. Yeah. Like Jesus says it. Yeah. It's very clear that it's not going to be easy and it's he not going to be clear, right? deeply it's in be, his spirit. Right, right, right. <laughs> Which is just a profound way of saying that, right? Uh, my translation says, with an impatient sigh. Oh. Yeah. And I wonder if he was if he was frustrated oh. for them as well. Like, do right. you know how hard this is going to be not... if you demand a sign every time you come to something that's difficult? <laughs> All right, there's more, to, more work to do with you than I thought. Oh, and it makes you go, like, and, and kind of to return to that metaphor of those kind of uh, landmarks. Like, one of the things, talking to my friends over the years, and once again, talking to the young adults, one of the most frustrating things, it seems like, for young adults is that at some point having to move back home. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and, I, and I experienced, right, like, right after seminary, that frustration myself. But, like... The the question of the, of that uh, if you require sign is just like do you do you even see where you are right now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. To be asking always to move forward. Can, can you see like I mean because when you do go home, who you are is different. But it's hard because of the surroundings to parse that out and kind of figure mm-hmm. out what that means. Uh, and so it's, it's it's almost like cool. You want to be moving forward. But can you see where you are and who you're called to be in this very moment? Can you even see that beyond mm-hmm. your desire to be somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I love that because that sort of, um, it brings us to the issue of gratitude. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we're looking at what we haven't done or we're back here again, it means that have we truly taken stock of where we've been? And mm-hmm. what I love about that Mark and Sandwich story of if we interpret discipleship by this blind man, then being a disciple means being healed, that healing and discipleship are somehow synonymous, somehow going together. And so how do we think of healing as maybe not always at once? What do we do with that when we think about ourselves as people being healed as Jesus's disciples? <laughs> well, as someone who's gone through a lot of surgeries, <laughs> um, you know, uh, 
six years out of my last surgery, I have to go back to the doctor in a couple of weeks because something didn't heal correctly mm. and I got to go get it fixed and I could live with it. Um, but it's just going to cause more problems to the rest of the systems around it mm-hmm. until I get it fixed. And it's frustrating and you want to walk away from that part of the journey. I want to walk away from that part. I want to walk away from cancer and go, it's done, it's over. But even my oncologist says, um, my oncologist never says you're cancer free. He says cancer is undetectable at this time because... Are we ever fully healed? No, there's always, there can be traces of whatever it is still left that come up in other spaces and other moments. And we go, oh, this has nothing to do with this situation. This has to do with something that happened five years ago that this situation triggered. Mm-hmm. I got to go back and heal that five years ago. Right. Um, and I just, I, I think going through that journey helped me understand that spiritually. Because it's interesting because we do the work physically, you know, we we train and we realize we have to, you know, we hurt something when we're running or I don't know about running, but <laughs> supposedly people tell me that that happens and then you have to like start over and things like that. We understand that physically and we sometimes understand that mentally, but we very rarely understand that spiritually. We don't think that the same work has to do with us spiritually, and yet mm-hmm. we're called to love God, mind, body, and soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was thinking uh, when it comes to like therapy. Like um, the, the, the more I'm in therapy, the more I'm made aware of myself. And it, oftentimes it comes back to the same issues. Why is my are my words or my behavior destructive in this way? Oh, it typically comes back to the same issues that I've struggled with my whole life, and that's why I have to continue to go back to therapy because mm-hmm. I, I, I'll, I'm never complete because I'm always covering back over those things and not allowing them to be healed, not revealing them and bringing them to the altar. And for me, that's that's part of that idea of sanctifying grace is not just salvation, but sanctification is also like Jen, you were saying, is we're continuing moving on towards towards healing and wholeness. Um, but it's, 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 it's a life journey and that yeah. Christ comes through for it all. And it, it, not, to, not to jump the shark and move to John, however, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Could it be Mark was written first, right? The gospel of Mark was written first. Mm-hmm. And Mark is like, you know, you just gotta die and you gotta get healed again and all this kind of stuff. And people didn't get it. And John was like, okay, let me have Jesus tell you this you are a part of the vine and the branches. <laughs> you know? Like, because like, if I go to the metaphor, if I understand my healing and my process of sanctification having to do with the life cycle of a plant and my purpose is to produce fruit, then I have to die. Like, mm-hmm. we understand that with plants, mm-hmm. but why do we not understand that spiritually? And I wonder sometimes if Mark goes, here, let me help you understand it because Mark wrote that a few years ago and you didn't get it then. So let me give you a new and story. And it was a little rough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a little rough. A little rough. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and I, th- I love that part because then then healing is part of life and it's part of living. It's not, it's not necess- it doesn't have to be the trauma we make it out. Like, yeah, you were healed of cancer, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean you can't break your leg. Right. You know, and that you're not going to have something else that's going to require healing. Like we love to have this idea, I think, in the modern church of, oh, I've been saved, I've been healed, or I got rid of that addiction and now I'm good. And right. I'm like, no, well, no, no. Jesus paid it all. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'm good. I'm sad. I'm done. And and I feel that sets people up for a 
a really big disappointment when they realize that Christian discipleship is, it's not just healing all this old stuff, but guess what? You're going to get hurt over and over and over again as long as you're alive. It's not going to stop. I mean, back to the the therapy thing, I've heard people say, oh, just, it didn't work. You know, like, oh, like, how many, I went twice and it doesn't work. I'm like, ooh, well, like, oh, I mean, I go like, yeah, yeah, how many chemo radiations did you do? You're like, two didn't work. This is life. And sometimes the healing that we need for one thing causes hurt in other places. Yeah. Like like I take medication mm-hmm. to heal the cancer that actually causes osteoporosis. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. yeah, I will probably break a bone mm-hmm. eventually down the Sorry road. I brought that and it, up. No, 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 it's okay because I recognize that sometimes when I heal mentally or when I heal spir- spiritually, mm-hmm. it will later change something about mm-hmm. that I didn't notice I'm going to do mm-hmm. and I'm going to get hurt again. Mm-hmm. Because I, because there's more healing to be done. If that makes sense, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. um, there there is great. It, it continually perpetuates because discipleship is a journey that's mm. not linear. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this doesn't always feel like something we want to call good news. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was talking to a young adult we were baptizing a few months ago, and um, she said, you know, I, I want to get baptized. I've never been baptized. You know, I, I feel this calling and all of this, and I want to get baptized so I understand things better. And I said, oh, sweetheart, I have some bad news for you. <laughs> yeah. Is It's going to get harder. Mm. And we had the best conversation, and she was all for it. She was yeah. she was in for it. But it was it was one of those where this this your, your sort of initial understanding is you're thinking, oh, I'm going to heal this thing. And, and you do. Mm-hmm. But then it actually opens up actually opportunities for other things that yeah. can be harder and harder. And praise God, Jesus is in the healing business, course, right? Yes. Continually, right. the Holy of Spirit course. is at yes. work. And so that's we're not left alone. Well, and right. the good news is that it produces abundantly more fruit, again, to jump to John. But also, Jesus did it too. Mm-hmm. And Jesus yep. did it for us. Yeah. And Jesus did it before us. And yeah. we're not alone in it. Yeah. And that's the good news of discipleship is that Jesus was like, here, I'm going to show you how it's done. And I'm going to show you what happens. And I'm going to show you what resurrection is. Mm-hmm. So follow me. Exactly. Peter didn't get it. Exactly. And right if, when we think about discipleship as healing, who does the healing? Well, the healer. So in discipleship, who's really the one doing the work? Mm. It's the master. Yes. It's the teacher. Right. You know, and so we are just making ourselves, like you said, available for the healing. We're showing up with the wounds and saying, all right, I got this and I need you to do something about this. And I am, I am open. I will take whatever prescriptions are necessary. Um, so as long as we are available... Um, the real work that's being done is being done on us. Mm-hmm. And it's it's our willingness to allow it to happen and to take down those defenses that prevent it. Um, but the good news is also that it's it's God that's doing the work. Right. And 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 also it's not bait and switch. That's what's yeah. about <laughs> right. the church makes it bait and switch. <laughs> yeah. But Jesus very clearly says, Yeah, you're gonna have to die to some stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't like sugarcoated or anything, yeah. which is beautiful because we're getting ready to head into Lent. Yeah. And we do know the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. So why are we afraid to journey is the question. It goes back to what you said, Jen. A lot of people talking about it, the story, ain't read the story. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Tells us what's going on. You know what I mean? And what's required That's of the us. whole theme of the whole year. We yeah. literally <laughs> haven't read this story. <laughs> it's not that we haven't read it. Literally, it's literally we, we haven't, haven't read, read it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that uh, brings us to a close. Uh, we're so glad you've been with us uh, today, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on, on Sunday and, and the next week at our podcast. 